Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week starts off a new series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Okay, as we get started this morning, anything left over from last week? We kind of were finishing up the famous people you've never heard of. And uh, so I had one comment, yeah, earlier. Yeah, so so last week, I... uh, didn't realize or didn't figure out where I could put it, but this was kind of impressed upon me that, uh, you know, the whole uh, chapter 11 before we get to chapter 12. In Hebrews, in yeah. Hebrews, mm-hmm. talks about faith, and, and how God and uh, the men of God and that faith has moved that. Yes. And then, so, we get into chapter uh, to the 12, it says, uh, now that we are uh, campus by, by uh, a cloud of uh, uh, witnesses. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in faith, in the previous chapter, we see that faith is trusting and moving yes. with the trust. And, and in uh, uh, chapter 12, the witnesses uh, in the Bible, uh, we find believers that, that trusted God and did things by the Spirit we're called witnesses of Jesus Christ. And and so in that scripture, I I kind of felt like, you know, it's it's not just talking about people that will see things happen, but people that will actually be doing these things. The witnesses of Jesus Christ. You see in in, uh, Acts chapter one, where Jesus Christ tells his disciples that you shall be my uh, witnesses of me. Mm-hmm. And then also in the uh, preceding chapters, you, you see a lot of these people, Stephen, uh, who was the witness of uh, Jesus Christ that was stoned and killed. And so the witnesses are not people that are out there, but the witnesses are people that are within. And then the other thing that we run a race, and the race is because there's so many people around us that are witnessing and we are also witnesses, and also we want to win the race of witnessing. And now, you know, when you look at it like that, there are people who are seeing others do it, but it's people who are doing things to witness the presence of Jesus Christ. So that's that's kind of thing that I felt to fix into what was going on last week. But, yeah. You know, I, I thought I should. Well, thank you for thinking about it all week. That is awesome that you did that. That's great. I love that when uh, we can so- kind of plant some seeds here of, of uh, a, a way to think about things, and then it sort of sits with you and then blossoms and blooms uh, a week later. So that was very awesome. Yes. To piggyback on, on what he said, that's one of the things about growing up Lutheran is that you grow up knowing you're saved and you don't have to do anything. So very often we don't do anything. We don't take our faith out. Now, I was raised as a Catholic, so I earned my I earned my salvation <laughs> for 29 years until this man shared the gospel with me. Yeah. And because then I realized I had been saved through nothing I'd done, that joyfulness allowed me to share it with others and take that faith out into the streets. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah. That's where, like he's saying, we need to take it out into the streets, mm-hmm. whether whatever it is that they're offering. That's true, because sometimes the temptation when you have grown up with it you're in your life, 
the idea that you don't have to do anything for your salvation. Sometimes the temptation is to think that you don't do anything after your salvation either. So we sort of get in the habit of making our faith an intellectual exercise without necessarily there being any movement or without necessarily there being activity. And so it's, it's, it's a question of what comes first and what comes second and not to, to simply let it be a faith of the head and maybe even necessarily just the heart, but it's also of the hands that I'm a faith of, of walking. I'm a faith of doing. And, and then that puts us into proximity of people with whom then we can be witnesses. So great, great, uh, great insights. Any other thoughts about what we uh, talked about uh, last week? Okay. So what we're going to do today is we're starting then a new series on the gospel of John. And given our track record here, I expect that our Lord will come again before we get done with this. <laughs> but we will stay, stay the course and we'll just see how, uh, see how it goes for us. Um, I mentioned in your outline that one of the resources I'm using to, uh, I use commentaries to sort of help enhance kind of the study. And this is the little one that I'm using for, uh, as one of the sources. It's not the only one, obviously, but it's by uh, William Barclay. I've had this since I was in seminary. And so I found it to be a very helpful uh, resource. It's called the Daily Stu uh, Study Bible Series. And he's got a lot of Greek in there, but he's also got a lot of English in there, thankfully. So, uh, uh, so that's, that's been a good resource for me. And I wanted to just uh, mention, that, uh, mention that to you. So what we're going to do this morning is start out with kind of an introduction, if you will, to who John was and, and what, he was, uh, in, what his intent was in writing the gospel. Have, has anybody read just the gospel of John? Have you done that before? Yeah, probably so. Bits and pieces of it, I know. I, I have too. But as I mentioned last week, I never actually have done a complete study of it and certainly haven't uh, led a, a Bible study in it. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, but, but if you have read John, you can see that it's way different, isn't it, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the thinking about that is, is that we remember that when the, when the, when the gospel writers wrote those gospels, they were doing so with a particular audience in mind. And they did so with a particular purpose in mind. And so the purpose and the audience is what determines how they tell the stories. So where Matthew and Mark and Luke to some degree also, you get the sense that those stories are sequentially put together. That, that after this came this, after this came this, we get some of that in John, but we also don't get some of that in John. And some of the details that you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of a particular story, you don't get that in John. Some of you I know are involved in BSF. Have you all studied John and BSF? How many of you have done that? Okay, so a few of you had. So that'll be also a good backdrop for uh, our particular study of uh, John. So in looking at the introduction there on the first part of, the, uh, of your outline, uh, John was the son of Zebedee. Now, where were we first introduced to his father, Zebedee, or, or just the name son of Zebedee? Where, did, where do we first run across that? Remember when Jesus called his, his first disciples, right? You had Andrew and Peter and their brothers and their fishing, and who were their fishing partners? 
James and John, who were also brothers, and they, and the Bible says they were sons of Zebedee. So, you know, Zebedee actually could have been one of those famous people we never heard of because you don't really, there's not much reference to him in the Bible other than that he was the, he was their dad. But some of the things that we learn about the personality of John, at least early in his uh, relationship with Jesus, is that he was very ambitious. And the clue that we get to that is we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Matthew 20. Remember remember when their mother came and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, put one at my left and one at my right, you know, that sort of thing. And we sort of get the sense that it wasn't just their mother who had that idea, right? Because given the way that the rest of the disciples reacted to that, they were quite upset. They were quite indignant. How dare this mother... Uh, go to these extraordinary lengths to find a place of honor and esteem for their sons. And of course, we had a good time uh, talking about that with respect to some of the current events that are going on right now. The second thing uh, that is mentioned about James and John, but John in particular, is that Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder. Okay. Now, the sons of thunder reference came out of Luke 9, where Jesus was uh, preaching and teaching to some Samaritans. Now, what do you know about Samaritans? How did Samaritans feel about Jews? How did Jews feel about Samaritans? Absolutely no, lo- no love at all, okay? There was both a racial aspect and there was also a cultural and historical aspect as well. So the, how they felt in the current day reflected how they had felt for centuries, And so you know how it is in some families, you never forget anything, right? And that's kind of what was going on here. Those stories would have been told over and over again. Oh, those terrible Samaritans, terrible Samaritans. And the Samaritan families would have said the same thing about the Jewish families. Well, so Jesus is preaching and teaching to some Samaritans one day, and they're not listening to him. And in fact, they're kind of being a bit, in, uh, a, a bit contemptuous toward him. And so James and John said, Lord, if you want, we'll call down a little thunder from heaven and we'll just zap them, right? <laughs> and that's when Jesus said, I won't call you sons of thunder, but that isn't what my ministry is about. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so that's that part. We also know that, um, ja- that John was part of kind of the inner circle, if you will, of, uh, of Jesus's sort of uh, circle of support. That's a word I like to use. But uh, it, the Bible often references whom? Peter, James, and John, right, as being the ones that uh, were closest to Jesus. And probably, I mean, you know, again, God knows everything ahead of time. I'm kind of thinking that Jesus might have known or did know and was preparing already John for the extraordinary ministry that he would have as well. And then in the book of John, we'll see references to John as being the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I always thought was a little bit like, you know, do you really have to say that? I mean, as if there was nobody else that he loved. I I never quite knew what to do with that. Keith, did you have some thoughts on that? Was the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, but that's, that's a reference there maybe to the closeness, if you will, of the relationship he had with him. And then finally, John is the one who wrote the epistles, which are later in the new Testament. And then also the, uh, the book of revelation. Okay. So those are just some, some little uh, facts about, uh, about John that we're going to see will factor in later in some of the things that he wrote. So circumstances under which 
John wrote. The thinking is, the traditional thinking is that John was in Ephesus, which was a Macedonian city where, where some of the ch- uh, a church had, had been, had been uh, formed around 100 AD. So that sort of places him roughly about 70 years after uh, Jesus' uh, ministry was complete. And so what was going on in, in that culture at that time by now was that Christianity was part of the Gentile experience and especially was being intentionally reached out to Greeks. So see, you, you might remember from reading the book of Acts that that was always a big deal. Is, is Christianity intended only for people that were of Jewish descent and origin or was in fact the gospel to be shared with everyone and that people who were Greek or Gentile or non-Jew was the gospel open to them as well. There were um, some, uh, some groups, some uh, heretical groups within the, uh, within the New Testament era who believed that yes, the gospel can go out to Gentile people, but the Gentile people have to become Jewish first in order for it to take. And that would include some significant sacrifices on their part, not the least of which would have been circumcision. So that would have been a pretty high commitment being made uh, on the part of the uh, on the part of the Greek people. So since that was the case, since that was the case that the gospel was going to go out to Greek speaking people, to Greek thinkers, to people who did not grow up with all the stories and with all the rituals and with all the, the touch points, if you will, of Judaism, the dilemma for John and some of the writers was, how do we connect with somebody whose culture, whose language, whose experience in life, whose, uh, who, whose stories they all grew up with are totally different than ours? That's the question. How do we reach out to those who may in fact have heard something about the gospel, but are skeptical and maybe even doubt or maybe even reject. How do you do that? The reason why this book intrigues me so much is because I think that's our dilemma today. It's like reaching out to college kids. It's like reaching out to people that did not grow up in the faith or whose uh, family said, we're not going to raise you in the faith because we believe it's important for you to make that choice later in life, right? There's a lot of folks that, a lot of us boomers raised our kids that way, okay? Now, I know none of you here did that. I know, I know. But there's a lot of people in the world who did. That, that's, they fervently believed that it's not the parent's job to indoctrinate the kid. What the parent's job is, is to give the kid some ability to think for himself, and that would include making those choices later in life, and that would include religion and church and all those kinds of things, which is really hard to relate to if you didn't grow up like that. And yet, we're called by Jesus to be witnesses, right? But we're also called to somehow help to connect the gospel to people who don't have the same stories. You know, it used to be that, uh, when, t- let's say 20, 30 years ago, when I first started in, in uh, ministry. Well, actually, it's longer than that, but I don't want to admit that. All right. <laughs> 40 years ago. All right. You could get up on a Sunday morning in a sermon 
and make a passing reference to one of the stories in the Bible. And almost everybody there would be going like this and they would go, oh yeah, I know that one. Yeah, you know, Noah. Yeah, I know you're talking about, you know, uh, Moses and you're talking about all those people. And, and you could do it and not have to take any time at all to explain who that was and that it was actually in the Bible. That is not the case anymore. Now, in people that, like at Messiah, who have grown up in the church and have heard these stories forever and ever and went to Sunday school and Walther League and all the things that we did, we do. But if you didn't grow up in a church and you don't have that backdrop of knowing those stories and you didn't go to a Lutheran school or even a Christian school, maybe you don't have those references. See, so how do you, how do you connect the gospel to someone who doesn't have the same backdrop as you? And that was John's dilemma. And yet that was his, he felt that that was his call. Was there a way to relate the gospel to Greeks? Meeting them where they are instead of requiring them to meet him where he was without having to think like a Jewish person or from a Hebrew perspective. Does that make sense? See, and I think that is so, I'm just jazzed about that. I was so jazzed by that this morning. I woke up at 5.30 a.m. That's how jazzed I was about it. Now I'm dead tired and I don't know. <laughs> now I don't know if I can even make it through that. So it's just, it's just jazzing me, all right? So, so again, maybe to, to sort of t- uh, tweak that into into our, uh, our day uh, where we're talking about point two is how do you reach Greeks whose orientation is primarily rationalistic? How do you reach people who are, who are very focused on the mind and, and technology and, and, the, and, and seeing things from that perspective when basically a lot of us are looking at the approach of faith, of, or the approach of our belief from a heart perspective. How do you do that? Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what was going on in terms of how Greeks thought, okay? So in Greek thought, at John, in John's day, there was a compartmentalization that was going on between the mind and the heart, all right? So I'm going to try to kind of walk you through this a little bit because it can seem a little complicated. Is that the, the way that the Greeks thought worked was that they looked at the world in two different ways. In other words, that there was two worlds, two realities, if you will, all right? There was the seen world, which is the world that we live in, right? And it's called seen because you can see it. It's, it's the world of, of your senses. It's the world of your ability to figure things out. But it's also the world of shadows, of imitations of reality, and imperfect copies of the unseen world. So the the view that the Greek took was that you could not trust what you saw. You could not trust the seen world. You could trust the unseen world, but not the seen world. And furthermore, not only could you not trust the seen world, but there was of little value to the seen world. This came out of a teaching that uh, came from a philosopher whose name was Plato. You ever heard of Plato before? Okay. Plato was very instrumental, a very wise person, but he's very instrumental in, in forming Greek thought. And so part of the deal with Greek thought was, was that they believed this idea that anything that was of matter was essentially evil. 
That's that. So anything of your body, like your physical body, anything of the earth being made, anything that you hold in your hand, any of that was essentially evil. And then what they believed was that anything of the spirit, or they would say the mind, was essentially good. So the goal of one's life was for the spirit to free itself or escape from that which was evil. How many of you are familiar with uh, reincarnation, what reincarnation is? Know what that is? Okay, what is that? Because it's, 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 a, it's a belief, and it's a very powerful belief in the minds of many people today, mostly in the East, but also here, about uh, life after death and that kind of thing. So what does reincarnation teach? Yeah, Phil. When you die, you basically come back in another form of some living being. And if, if I remember correctly, based on how well you were in that previous life, uh, what, like people uh, believe, um, that if they're human now, this is like, the, the, like just the rung before reaching up to that next level That's right. of, of freeing, your, freeing your spirit from the, the chains of the evil world. And so the evil world, because it's evil, it cannot be trusted, and Plato would say, cannot be redeemed. There's no value in the, the, in the, uh, in the material world. It's only in that which is of, of the spirit, or they would say of the, of the mind. So the unseen world then is what is, uh, contains the originals of everything. So where the seen world has only the imitation of the original, if you want the real thing in life, then you have to somehow escape this life and you have to get to this life. So what might be some ways to do that? Pardon? What would be a way that you could, not necessarily good, but what, what's a way to do that? I guess intelligence, thinking, um, trying to better other people's lives because maybe that validates you. It could, but you wouldn't necessarily be all that interested in other people's lives. You're primarily interested in your own life. If your own life is all about getting away from this and getting into this, then I'm not really all that focused on you. You could be, but I'm really going to be focused on me. Yeah. Could also encourage a diminishing of taking care of your own body, your own self. Yes. So uh, 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 Brenda mentioned taking, not taking care of your own self. So what would be a way to do that? Thinking in terms of some of the Greek organizations, fraternal organizations, we might say, who are dedicated to the idea of uh, not necessarily taking good care of yourself. Epicurean comes to uh, a, a mind, uh, the hedonist kind of idea where, yes, we certainly can enjoy the pleasures of the world, but because my goal is to go from here to here, this is pretty short-lived. Yeah. Well, could that be like, like monks or people who totally move themselves away from the world and live in isolation? You could, because there's a utopian thought here, is there not? That maybe uh, even if the world itself is evil, maybe if I remove myself from that world and seek only this, right? The problem, of course, is that um, you'd almost have to do that by yourself. Because if you go off with a group, it's just another group of sinners that are doing what? That are, uh, uh, we, we end up falling into the same traps of the, uh, of the matter. All right? So, so the point that, that the Greeks thought was... 
was that there's very little use spiritually in terms of the body. And when we talk about the body, we're talking about like, like our physical body. The soul is trapped in the body, and because the soul is trapped in the body, any way that that soul can escape from the body is okay, including suicide. Because if, if I'm trapped, then what better way, right, to free myself from that to even do this? And this is one of the reasons why in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul goes to great lengths to explain the resurrection of what? The body. Because the Greeks of his day said, no way. If the body is evil and God himself cannot be touched by evil, then how in the world or why in the world would God even want to raise a body and glorify a body by giving us a new body when we go to heaven? See, that was like, that, he was like talking to, uh, talking to the wind when he was trying to explain to a Greek that Plato's wrong. That, the, that matter, in fact, is good because what? God created good. Okay. Luther sort of goes through a phase where he, had, he thought that the only way that he could get faith, he did self-flagellation and sure. a lot of things sure. because he thought he had to really be humble or mm -hmm. yeah. suffer or whatever. Yeah, it's always so that self-questioning. Really, sure. I read his book uh -huh. it, or a book about him. And Absolutely. Really Absolutely. That. So to ask the question, what, in, in what way do we see that today? Or do we see that today? That, that people are seeking, they're seeking something. And maybe part of it is, is that they look around in the world and see nothing but evil. Is that possible? All you have to do is check the news. Do, do, does anything good today get reported? It maybe gets mentioned... But then you have to go to six websites to find it, right? But if, it's, if it is breaking news, you can be assured somebody's breaking somebody, right? That's kind of how that's working. And so it would be very easy to conclude that the world is evil. There's nothing but evil in it. And why should I even bother? Why not just check out? Why not give up on religion? Why not give up on faith? Because you know what? That's not working anyway. It's not, it's not changing the world. It's not making the world a better place. Oh, it is for you Christians, but what about for everybody else? And that's the skepticism that we're hearing a lot today. Well, that's exactly what was going on in John's day. The skepticism. It's people who are looking at the world and saying, huh, what the heck? It's not making any difference. Yeah, Stephen. Aren't we seeing uh, a different form of religion called a cause where people say, I want to go after this cause, you know, mm -hmm. and that becomes their religion. Can be. What they eat, what they believe the environment's doing, and that's what they put their energy into, sure. not into God. That's right. And it, it, to some degree, that kind of makes sense. If you're looking for something in your life that's going to give you purpose and meaning, but you've already decided that Christianity or God or the church or whatever isn't going to do that for you, well, you still have the energy to do what? You still, have, you still want to put yourself into something. We can't fault that. 
But the question is, is what I'm putting my energy into ultimately self-serving and primarily self-serving, or is there some room in terms of, of, uh, of how that, in a, in a greater sense, serving others? All right. Any, yeah, Carl. This whole discussion kind of brought to mind two different mindsets uh, that I've recently come across. One mindset says, are you a, an earthly being having a spiritual experience or are you a spiritual being having an earthly experience? Oh, there, it's very good. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. And, I'd like to be the latter. <laughs> but, but it's a both and. The Greek would say compartmentalize. It's one or the other. And if I'm one, then I'm constantly trying to get away from that in order to get into what is pure, what is good, and maybe ultimately what's fulfilling. All right. The other thing, uh, uh, thinking, Stephen, about what you said with respect to a cause is that have you ever noticed that once I own my cause, I become very intolerant of other people who don't have the same cause as I do? And I become just as focused, right, on, on my own agenda and my own protection of it and my own feeling threatened by other people. So it doesn't really necessarily translate into uh, becoming a better person in society, right? So, so it, it, again, it's probably just an aspect of, uh, of human nature. So we see people today, at least I do maybe, is that they're struggling with that. I think people are looking for something that's real. And in a world where it's so hard now to tell what's real and what isn't, because everything gets Photoshopped. So I was... Uh, you know how I'm not on Facebook anymore, except I do a little stalking. That's about all. I don't really say anything on it, but I do go through it and see what other people are doing, mostly my nephews and nieces. But I got on Pinterest the other day. How many of you, I know, how many of you do Pinterest? Come on. Oh, wait, there's a lot. Okay, good. So you can teach me how to do this because I'm still kind of lost in it. But what I've noticed about Pinterest is is that everything in there is perfect. Have you noticed that? Is there any part of Pinterest where they just put broken stuff up? <laughs> do they do anything like that? Because that would, be so, that would be so reassuring that there's people like me that have a place in Pinterest, all right? So we're doing some remodeling, and our person who's helping with us with it said, go on Pinterest, and then we can, like, trade ideas and things. So, you know, while you're there, you're looking around at other stuff, and I'm thinking, there is nothing that's dented on there. There's <laughs> nothing that doesn't look so inviting and so wonderful. And so you feel instantly inadequate when you're looking at it. So I don't know how long I'm going to be on Pinterest, that's for sure. Somebody else had their hand up. Yeah. Google Pinterest fails. Yes. What? It's what? It's called Pinterest fails, mm -hmm. and you'll see pictures of what the Pinterest thing looks like, and when you did it, how? Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, okay. How do you how do you spell that? Pinterest. Pinterest. Let's see. How do you spell Pinterest, Stephen? Okay. Pinterest. That's it. F. F-A-I-L-S. F-A-I-L-S. Oh, that is comforting. I love that. What? There's no what? See, I can't even spell it right. I don't even know what. There's no E here. There's no E there. Okay. 
Yeah, there we go. Perfect. Okay. Pint, pint rest. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's what that is. Okay. Well, see, so that's real. But how many times do we hear in the news about fake news? And, you know, after a while, it's like you start thinking maybe it's all fake. Maybe there's not. I mean, you know, I remember when in the 70s, remember the movie Capricorn One? You remember that movie? That was a great movie. It was all about the... Uh, the astronauts that are going to the moon, or was it Mars? I can't remember which one it was. Anyway, the rocket takes off, and they have a malfunction, and there's a problem, and so they never actually make it to, uh, to the moon. And so then what happens is, because NASA, the people in NASA have put a lot of money into this, they're going, oh, we better not uh, tell everybody that this happened because it'll be terrible for us. So they fake it. They have a movie studio where it looks like the moon or Mars. I can't remember which one it was. And, and they're filming it, and the guys are walking like this. Okay, it's just like that, you know. And what's real interesting about it is, to me, is that there are groups of people today who still believe that we never went to the moon. And you think, how does anybody know what's true anymore? How does anybody know what's real? And that was where the Greek was in John's day, when it came to the spiritual, to, to the spirit. How do you know? And, and I think there's a lot of people today that are asking that same question. And so we think, okay, if that person walked into your proximity, came into your office, sat down at the table with you, maybe you raised them and they went off to school and came back like that. Maybe you said, why don't you guys come to church with us today? That'd be awesome. We've got a great service going on. And they look at you. That's who we're talking about. How do we reach them? How do we connect with them? And that's what John is all about. And I'm hoping that we can glean some things out of John that will help us with that very same quest. Now, part of the, the difficulty in John's day, and for John himself, being raised Jewish, was that the Jewish mindset and Jewish thought about how the mind and body and soul and all those things work was totally different from Greek thought. So what the Greek, where the Greek looked at a person's mind and a person's spirit and whether they believed in soul, I think there was some sort of connection there in terms of that they might mean the same thing. Okay, the mind, the spirit, and the soul... The Greek looked at those as being separate. The Hebrew looked at those things as being connected. And so the, the, the Hebrew would look at that the way that we're put together and the way that we roll in an integrated way. So an, an example of integrated way would be, have you ever heard of people who practice holistic medicine as an example? which is, is gaining quite a bit of a following even in and among westernly trained doctors. Okay, a lot of doctors are trained more in, I think, Brendan, am I saying that right? That it's more this, but it's kind of becoming oriented to this. Is that a fair way of saying that? Yes, but there's always been an overlap between complementary and alternative medicine and traditional medicine. Okay. A lot of comp stuff that can be tested and... Proven. Proven. Yes. Ends up in traditional medicine. Good. Good. So there is openness as long as it can be verified, maybe as a way of saying that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Where probably the line is for a lot of science-oriented 
is in more uh, probably what we call natural uh, approaches like uh, go eat some ginger outside and your headache will go away. I mean, that's, that's pretty simplistic to say it that way. But it's kind of viewed that way, I think. The better example would be caffeine for treatment of headaches. Caffeine for treatment of headaches. Another reason for me to have my coffee maker. <laughs> Thank you, Brenda, for mentioning that. Because I did have a little bit of a headache yesterday while I was seeing people. That was kind of a difficult thing. But uh, because I couldn't get my thing to work until after everybody left. So that was kind of a bummer. And in fact, somebody came in and wanted a cup of coffee. And I felt terrible because I couldn't give them a cup of coffee because I couldn't figure out how to make the digital part work. So anyway, it all works now. And so everybody's happy now. But that's a good example of that. The dosages is always kind of a thing that I've heard that, you know, how much do you take and that you can overdo it. Yeah, you sure can. Well, I'm glad that there's an openness to that. All right. In John's day, there was not an openness. The Jewish thought was like this and the Greek thought was like this. John was raised like this and all the supporting documentation that went with it, the stories in the Bible, et cetera, the Bible itself. And the Greek would look at this and say superstition. The Greek would look at that and say mythology. The Greek would say, you can't trust it because it's just something that has been passed down from generation to generation. And you know how that is when you play the telephone game. Have you ever played the telephone game? What happens when you play the telephone game? Yeah, we, we should call it the gossip game is what we should call it. But it's easier to digest it if we call it the telephone game. Okay, but kind of the same thing happens. All right. So because of that, the Greek the, uh, had no use for that. So an example of that scripturally is in Matthew 22, where uh, Jesus was talking to this guy who, who came up to him and said, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Remember that part? And Jesus said, uh, well, what is it? And the guy said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. See, with all your heart, soul, and mind, they're all connected. You could put hyphens in between them. Where a Greek would say the mind is separate, the spirit is separate, the soul is separate, and already there's a disconnect. They're not talking about the same thing. Okay? Make sense so far? You track it with me? Yeah, Austin, you had your hand up? Yeah, I think one thing that um, with medicine and stuff is the placebo effect of mind over body. Oh. Of how people were given sh like just sugar pills that had no actual medical treatment, and yet they actually got better. Yeah. They actually, their mind was able to almost control their body. So there is a little bit of a sense of that, isn't there? There is yes. some kind of connection that the mind can overcome the body, that there has to be some connection for the mind to control the body. And yet, kind of what's interesting about a lot of that today, the, the studies that they're doing on today, is that sometimes the mind will attempt to fake the body out. So, like, for example, your body, one of the beliefs I have is that your body will always tell the truth. And your mind, your mind can say, oh, no, you're not really tired. Oh, no, you're not really depressed. 
oh no, you don't really need to take a break and rest. You can work that 80 hour week because you know what? It's worth it for you to do that. Look how many people are being helped by the fact that you're doing that. What I mean when I say the body will uh, eventually tell the truth is that it will eventually do what if you're working the 80 hour week and convincing yourself that that is the the best uh, uh, path for you. What will your body do? It'll break down. Yeah. So there's some sense of paying attention to what your body is saying. Okay. Not to exclude that what your mind is telling you. Sure. Of course, our mind's important too, but it's that idea of having it work together rather than the idea of making one be the superior thing over the other. That's what I mean. So John's approach, if you go to page two, his approach in writing the the book of John, the gospel of John, made perfect sense to the Greek mind. Because in the very first part of John where he says, and we're going to look at that next time, the sort of preamble, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. The Greek word for word is logos. Okay, that's familiar to us. That's a, that's a word in English that we all kind of know. Well, when a Hebrew read the word logos, they, they saw it as the word word. But when a Greek read the word logos, he interpreted it as the mind of God. Do you see the difference between the two? And so the Greek is already reading something different than what the, what the uh, Christian would read, or certainly what the Jewish person would read. So what John's approach is to say is that Jesus is the mind of God, that the mind of God is not some some sort of goofy spiritual thing out there that's so vague that you would have no way of connecting to it uh, from a human perspective, maybe from an intellectual perspective you could, or a feeling perspective. But you would not have a way of connecting to it in a, a relationship. In order to have a relationship, a human has to somehow be involved, right? So the idea that Jesus came as a person the very presence of God himself in person, this was going to blow the minds of the Greek totally out of the water. Jesus is the very mind of God coming from where? The unseen world where everything's perfect, but coming to the seen world to do what? To redeem that world. See, the the Greeks said, no way, there's no way that this could ever be redeemed because this is essentially evil. So Jesus is, uh, so John is saying, no, Jesus is the real thing that you can trust in, not just the true thing. Another, uh, another approach that John took was with respect to miracles. When Jesus's miracles are recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what is really emphasized there is Jesus's compassion that he reaches out to people in need. He cares for them. He's shepherding them. He's being there for them. That's not a prominent theme in John. The prominent theme with respect to Jesus's miracles is that they were signs. They certainly were signs of his glory. But what, what is meant by that is the idea that when we look at the miracles of Jesus, we get a little look, see, into the window of the way God thinks. And that would have totally enraptured a Greek person because the Greek would have said, oh, that's, that's what I want to know. I want to know uh, the mind of God. I want to know how God thinks. I want to know how he operates in the world. 
And so John C. latches onto that and uses the language of the Greek to, uh, to reach the Greek. Okay? Anybody lost yet? This is, it, this is, there's some complexity to this, isn't there? But again, partly because we're not Greek. We're not Greek. We, we have a real hard time, a lot of us, connecting to people who don't think like we do. And guess what? There's a whole generation of people in our world who do not think like we do. And we know them. So how do we connect with them? It's on us, I believe, to reach them as opposed to expecting what? Them to come to us. So who's got more to learn? We do. We do. And that's what this is about. Okay, we're going to stop here. And we'll pick it up next week. Now, let's see next week. Is there something going on next week? What's going on? Oh, normal stuff. Palm Sunday. Uh, regular service in the morning. So we'll have regular class. On Easter, there's no class. Because uh, we got three services that day. And so, you know, I got a few things to do that day. So, uh, and then so we'll pick it up after that. Okay? Good? We're good? All right. Very good. Well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, you have... You've given us a great opportunity and privilege to reach out to people in the world. And some of them are in our own backyards, and many of them are in our own families. Maybe it used to be easier to do that, Lord, because we all spoke the same language, and maybe we all knew the same stories, and maybe we all uh, had the same touch points in life that... Uh, that made sense to us and that spoke to us. It doesn't seem so much like that anymore. So Lord, what are we to do? Well, what we're to do is what John did. And that is to kind of figure out where are the connecting points and in what way can we use the good news of your love for us to reach those around us, to connect with those around us. So Lord, as we uh, embark on this journey together in the gospel of John, I, I would just sim simply pray, Lord, that you you guide us and you teach us and you open our hearts to be able to do something that's a, probably a bit out of our comfort zone. That as we run that race, as we, as we do movement, as we, as we lean on you to do that, that the blessing will be that others will come to know you in that powerful way. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Give us opportunities to be challenged by that. Bless those that are hearing our, our podcast today as maybe perhaps they too struggle and they too maybe have some of the same questions we have as together we figure out from the Gospel of John what's the best way to reach. Watch over us, dear Lord, as we, uh, until we're together again and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, 
Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.